Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Samira Moyadin. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, death sentence, hearing of Alexei Navalny's reported death in a Russian prison. Human rights activist Tonya Lokshina, who herself is in exile, describes what it means to lose Vladimir Putin's most prominent critic. Searching for answers as Carmen Manitoba hosts a vigil for five community members found dead this week. Questions about how it was allowed to happen linger. Proven tractor record, farmers in India are again on the road to Delhi, pushing the government to deliver on the promises it made back in 2021 when they protested for more than a year. Our guest says they are fully stocked and ready for the long haul this time too. All over the map, a self-proclaimed transit geek and transportation YouTuber scores a one-way ticket to his own personal paradise when London rebrands its iconic transit map, adding new names and colors. Get it back to where it once belonged. Decades after it disappeared, Paul McCartney is reunited with his beloved and very first bass guitar. Our guest helped track it down. And head over heels in Larva. A Delta flight from Amsterdam to Detroit was forced to turn back to the Netherlands after maggots began raining down from an overhead bin. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that views this not as a threat, but a worming. In what would become the last known video footage of him, Alexei Navalny was seen laughing from behind bars. Today, Vladimir Putin's most prominent critic has been reported dead. This morning, Russia's Federal Penitentiary Service said the 47-year-old opposition leader has died in an Arctic Circle jail after feeling unwell and losing consciousness. Hours after the reports broke, Yulia Navalny stepped on stage at the Munich Security Conference to a standing ovation. She said she didn't know whether to believe the news about her husband since it was coming from Russia. But she warned Putin and his circle that they will be held accountable. Mr. Navalny's spokesperson said this morning that his lawyer was headed to the prison to get more information. Tanya Lukshina is the Europe and Central Asia Associate Director at Human Rights Watch. She's not in Russia and has asked us not to share her location for safety reasons. Tonya, this was startling news to read, even as a stranger, even though through covering this story, we knew this could one day happen. What was it like for you to find out that it did happen? It was shocking, but most unfortunately, given the circumstances, it is not surprising. Mr. Navalny has been thrown into a punishment cell 27 times in the course of his multi-year confinement. He was detained arbitrarily and then imprisoned on politically motivated charges. And we do not know the exact circumstances of his death. 
frankly, no one does. And I also seriously doubt that we would be able to find out for certain. But no matter how it happened, the Kremlin is responsible for it. The Kremlin wanted to eliminate Navalny as Putin's one viable political opponent. Navalny suffered a poisoning with a banned chemical agent a while ago. He was treated in Berlin, and as soon as he returned to Russia, he was jailed. What did you make of his decision to go back, knowing, you know, he went with his eyes wide open, about the dangers? That is indeed true. He went back with his eyes wide open. Mr. Navalny is a politician, and as a politician, he could not imagine himself being in exile, being in a foreign country, because as a politician, you can only make a difference when you're there, inside. And that was his choice. It was a very brave choice indeed. You met Alexei Navalny several times, Tanya. What do you remember from those meetings? Well, I first met Mr. Navalny, and we are very close in age. When I was a rookie at the Moscow Helsinki Group, which is a leading human rights organization in the country, now shut down by the Russian government, as many other human rights organizations. And he was a member of the youth section of the Yabloka Party. And that was, again, many years ago. He was charismatic. He was pushy. He knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to change the country. And throughout his entire political career, no matter which political force he was involved with or how he presented himself, that was his deep ambition. He wanted the country to be changed and he wanted the country to become a democracy. And it is not surprising that the government went after him because he's been indeed Mr. Putin's key opponent. Mm. Someone who was, among other things, able to capture the minds of Russian youth. Someone who made politics interesting for the youth. And that's why the Kremlin was particularly bothered about him. And that's why the Kremlin went after him and wanted to make sure that he is eliminated one way or the other. What will happen to that opposition movement now uh, and the, the young people, all of the people that you say Mr. Navalny was able to inspire? These are very dire times for Russia. And many political activists and civic activists are now in exile. And at the same time, there are people, including human rights defenders, my friends and colleagues who are still inside the country and who are still fighting. And one of them is Oleg Orlov, co-chair of Memorial, the country's leading human rights organization. And he is now facing a three-year prison term. But, you know, based on the case of Mr. Navalny, three years doesn't mean anything. Three years can turn into 10 years and 15 years and 19 years, and then given detention conditions and uh, ill treatment, God knows what is going to happen. I'm really, really worried about my friends and colleagues who remain on the ground. You are not in Russia, uh, as we've said, but what can you tell us about what you're hearing about the reaction there to this news? People are devastated. Uh, They truly are. 
And I'm, of course, talking about the people who want Russia to be a democracy, not only about political activists and human rights defenders, but about your ordinary people who are appalled by the war in Ukraine, who are appalled by the raging repression wielded by the Kremlin. It's devastation. And at the same time, Navalny said, often enough, I do not fear and you should not. And there are lots of people in Russia who do not fear, no matter what. You have a son, 11 years old, I believe. What are you telling him about why you are not in Russia and this news today? Well, he knows full well that the reason we are to leave the country is because all reporting that I do and the reporting on Russia's abuses in Ukraine and Russia's war and crimes in Ukraine in particular make me criminally liable by Russia's draconian war censorship legislation and could land me in jail for many, many years. So he is well aware of the fact that we left the country, which used to be his home, because of this particular situation. I think he is growing up too quickly. These are not the issues he's supposed to be thinking of. Do you imagine a time when you can both return to Russia and it will be the place that, that you and many others, including Alexei Navalny, wanted it to be? Hopefully at some point, yes, but not in the near future. Tonya, thank you. Thank you. Tonya Lakshina is the Europe and Central Asia Associate Director at Human Rights Watch. This week in northern India, farmers haven't just been out in their fields, they've also taken to the roads. On Tuesday, farmers began making their way to Delhi as they pushed the government to increase the minimum support price, or MSP, they receive for certain crops. For many, they'll be treading familiar ground. These latest demonstrations come just over two years since farmers spent 13 months protesting against government policies. Pushpendra Singh is a farmer and president of the farmers group Kisan Shakti Sang. We reached him near the border of Uttar Pradesh and Delhi state. Pushpendra, what are things like at the protests right now? Right now, uh, about, uh, uh, you can say, two, three uh, points between uh, Punjab and Haryana border, farmers with the tractor trolleys are camping uh, and they're marching towards Delhi but the Haryana government has blocked the highway, uh, all highways which are leading towards Delhi, and uh, a sort of international border has been created between Punjab and Haryana. So you've had to pause. What is everyone doing? Most of the people are just waiting because uh, three rounds of talks uh, have happened, but uh, with the central government, three ministers were sent uh, in Chandigarh and uh, the farm unions also went there for talks, but uh, nothing has come out of it. 
then the next round is uh, scheduled for sunday evening and and the big issue i know is the msp or the minimum support price farmers want an increase they want to add a 50% premium to what their wheat and rice production costs as they are now why do farmers need that increase so for farmers are saying that uh, the cost of production plus 50% was the recommendation mm-hmm. of swaminathan uh, commission and uh, the modi government had promised it and uh, when the last farm protest happened 2020 the government agreed that they are forming a committee which will look into this matter and will uh, give them 50% profit above the cost but uh, nothing has come out of uh, that committee no report has been submitted so again when the farmers saw that uh, the term of this government is ending and they we are heading into elections in uh, about 3 months time so they started marching towards delhi mm-hmm. to press uh, for these demands you want to make sure those promises are kept yeah definitely and uh, there were other promises also which were uh, made by the government uh, like uh, loan waiver because of the government policies the uh, rural india or farmers and laborers are in huge debt so they wanted a, a loan waiver mm-hmm. for the farmers and the laborers so that was another and then there were certain other demands uh, like withdrawal of all pending cases against farmers mm-hmm. that were filed uh, during the last agitation to pressurize them then they also demanded punishment for uh, the guilty of lakhimpur kheri incident in in which uh, one uh, home minister's son crushed four farmers under his jeep in front of cameras mm-hmm. uh, who were protesting against them so you're looking for accountability and and keeping those promises as we said in terms of the the impact on a farm a farmer in india if they don't get this msp how does that affect their operations their lives if that that increase doesn't come through and definitely uh, if the farmers don't get the right msps then the uh, private sector actually buys these crops at 25 to 30% uh, below what is uh, the msp declared so that is the kind of uh, and in the poorer regions like bihar odisha uh, some of the, some of the times the farmers get just 50% of what is the declared msp and msp that is the minimum the farmers must get mm-hmm. to remain in business otherwise they'll uh, incur losses and then uh, they'll be into a debt trap there are some economists i was reading who who don't love the msp they say it leads to food inflation and that it can lead to overproduction of rice in, in particular there are concerns about air pollution in in terms of how that production is is carried out what do you say to those kinds of concerns no actually the value of the production of these msp crops is about uh, uh, 15 lakh rupees and 15 uh, lakh crore rupees and uh, one third of that is actually consumed by the farmers it never goes into the market because farmers are half of the population of the country and then one third is uh, being purchased by the government it is only the one third part which come into the market so it is not that the government will be burdened by this but won't it and impact the consumers incl- they will have to pay more prices will go up anyway the private sector is charging super normal profits mm-hmm. right now the msp for the wheat 
say is about uh, uh, 2250 rupees okay but the wheat flour you get is for around 40 45 50 rupees so that is the kind of uh, uh, profits that they are making mm-hmm. so it it will not impact because the economy of the country is around 300 lakh crore rupees more than that so you're saying so, the private sector I, needs to be if if people are worried about prices and inflation they should talk to the private sector not farmers am i understanding you right like the farm actually these people are making more profits and they're not giving the right price to the farmers the farmers must get msp to remain viable otherwise they'll leave farming and then the consequences of that will be huge for the consumers ultimately and farmers must get that so the farmers are not going to compromise on that rest of the a few things may be uh, they'll uh, compromise but this is a uh, sort of uh, very essential for uh, farmers to remain in business you mentioned the elections they're set to be held in the spring how long do you think these protests will go the protests the farmers are right now uh, they have come up with rations and supplies that will last them for 6 months and then surrounding villages keep on supplying more food and everything they need so they are not going to stop until they achieve their objectives pushpendra i appreciate your time i'm glad we could speak thank you thank you nail pushpendra singh is a farmer and president of the farmers group kisan shakti song we reached him near the border of uttar pradesh and delhi city London's Jay Foreman is a self-proclaimed transit geek. He makes YouTube videos about transportation. He's written and performed songs about London's tube stations. So while a new rebrand to the city's overground rail system, including changes to the map, might not get you amped, for him it's a pretty big deal. We reached Jay Foreman in London, England. Jay, are you excited to add the new overground map to your collection? I am this is a really long overdue because um you might know that the London underground map over the last few decades it's been changing it's been getting gradually more and more yeah. crowded and more and more cluttered with new lines uh, and then this latest change in the last couple of days uh, it's probably the the biggest immediate change that the map has had in in many decades where suddenly this what used to be a huge very illegible mess of orange everywhere <laughs> has now become this multicolored thing where each different line has got its own different color and its own different identity and most controversially its own new name yeah. um so, i think it's a massive uh, very positive change do you know anyone else who's as excited about transit Yeah there's, as you, of, yeah. yeah, there's a small community of people that make videos on YouTube all about transport in London. You uh, are their leader, yeah, unofficially. <laughs> there's quite a lot of us. I'm one of them, and uh, yeah, so if you're interested in tube maps, if you're interested in London infrastructure, uh, yeah, it's been a big week. A lot of people, even if they're if they're not as as deep into this world as you are, you know, tourists come to London. I mean, this is a big merchandise thing too, right? For the for the tube, at least. Well, I've, I've said this before in in one of my videos. I think the tube map is the closest thing that London has to a flag because it's so iconic. It's basically <laughs> part of London, like Big Ben, the London Eye, you know, all the other things that London is famous for. And in just the same way that you couldn't have London without the red phone boxes, the red buses, you couldn't have it without the tube map either. 
So um, it's a big day for tube map merchandise as well. <laughs> so the tube map itself, it's 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 pretty iconic for all the reasons you mentioned. This is for the underground trains, multicolored, pretty easy to navigate. The times I've been lucky enough to visit London, the overground map is what we're talking about here, and it wasn't That's multicolored right. lines before, right? What was the issue? So the story is, in 2007, they introduced a new network to the tube map. All of these suburban lines um, suddenly became part of Transport for London. So they had to be shown on the map. And what they did was they decided to call all of these extra lines, um, since so much of it ran um, not in tunnels, they called it the London Overground to complement the London Underground. Mm -hmm. Now, back in 2007, this made sense because there were only a small handful of lines. But what's happened in the 15 years since then is the network has been slowly growing and growing. And up until, well, yesterday morning, the tube map was this bizarre combination of colorful lines for the tube mm -hmm. and a mess of orange for everything else. So what they've finally done is break up the orange and turn it into lots of different lines. Because in many ways, those suburban lines, what we used to call the overground, they don't actually intersect. Yeah. So by giving them different names, it's made not only the map easier to look at, but way more importantly, it's made navigation easier. Because if you turn up to a train station on your way to work, and the announcement says there are severe delays on the London Overground. You'll go, uh oh, does that include my bit? I have to look at the map and see which bit's down. Mm -hmm. But what's changed now is the announcement will say something along the lines of there are delays on the suffragette line. And you'll go, oh, well, that's not my bit. I'll be OK. So it's a massive improvement. Yeah, there are names to all of these lines. You said one of them there, suffragette, others, lioness, windrush, liberty. Uh, they want to, to draw connections to, to the people who live near these lines, the history of these parts they did. of, of yeah, the extended so they, suburbs. Um, they spent a fair bit of time and a bit of money as well doing some consultation to find out what some suitable names would be. And as I understand it, they spoke to um, historians and transport experts. And I think uh, most importantly, they spoke to the locals. They spoke to people that use these trains every day and see what they would like reflected. And what I'm very pleased about is that they've gone for these names that are quite bold and that reflect London's history and diversity. Not everyone is excited about this, uh, as you are, Jay. As you likely know, there is some criticism. Some of it is coming from Conservative Party mayoral candidate Susan Hall, who is criticizing London Mayor Sadiq Khan. She's calling this rebranding, quote, the stuff of nonsense. And and she's saying that well, there's no need to spend this money. You know, was this really necessary? But the thing is, though, you have to realize that Susan Hall's job for the next few months is uh, to simply criticize Sadiq Khan until she inevitably loses to him in May. And it's very, very easy to say that money shouldn't have been spent on this, because when anything happens, the easiest thing to say to criticize it is you should have spent the money somewhere else. I think spending money on improving people's journeys and making it easier to navigate your way around I think that's exactly the sort of thing that you can justify spending money on uh, just once. That's the thing to remember is that once the rebrand is done, the rebrand is done forever. and It's going to change London and make it easier to navigate for decades. Can the London transit system do any wrong, in your view? Absolutely. It's not mm -hmm. perfect by any means. Uh, for one thing, we are one of the um, systems in the world where the fares make up the vast majority of the money raised, whereas in most other cities, especially in Europe, it's heavily subsidized by government. And that's something that we don't do. So the tube is very, very expensive in London. That's something that perhaps should change. And it's also, if you get the tube every day and it's just part of your daily boring morning commute, you're not going to think about how efficient the system is. You're going to notice when it goes wrong. So Londoners love to complain about when the tube <laughs> goes wrong. And there's plenty that, of course, it could do better. But in general, we are very lucky to have it. You talk about transit on YouTube. You have even written a song about all the tube stations to help people memorize them. We want to play our listeners just a tiny bit of that. 
Warwick Avenue, Waterloo, Watford, Walthamstow Central with Wanstead, Hounslow West and Hounslow East and East Ham, West Ham, West Hamstead. <laughs> and the song goes on for I think three minutes because there are there are so many news news it's, there are so many stations. Are you going to it's write a new long, song now? It? No, it's actually that's one thing I hadn't thought of is the fact that the London Overground has been broken up and given lines just like the tube. That's actually bad news for me because I'm going to have to rewrite my song now. The song is already long <laughs> enough. And I get lots of people leaving comments on the video on YouTube saying, ah, oh, you missed out such and such station. And until now, I've been able to say that doesn't count. It's part of the London Overground. But I guess now, <laughs> now that the network has just ballooned in size, technically, I suppose I better make it an even longer song. <laughs> Jay, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. That was YouTuber Jay Foreman in London. some words you have to be careful about using on the radio, like and and of course and also hmm, seems like the folks in the control room are a bit nervous today. And I'll admit this next story is a bit ew, but take it from me, mindset is everything. We have more power than we think we do to bring a positive outlook to even the most challenging situations. Ah, you're doing it. Well done. Because you, like me, understand that we make our own yuck. I mean, luck. And that after the rain, there will be sun. So it just stands to reason that after a pile of maggots rain down on you from an overhead bin while you are on a flight from Amsterdam to Detroit, as happened to one Delta passenger this week, you don't have to see it as an incredibly horrible travel experience, but as a growth, I mean growth opportunity. Just take the airline's lead. In a statement, Delta explained the flight was, quote, interrupted due to an improperly packed carry-on bag. See? No mention of maggots at all or rotten fish, which were the source of the maggot rain. The point is, it's always possible to look on the blight, I mean bright side. And to think of things like this less as something that might cause you to gag and more as a hilarious gag. Something that would make you laugh out loud as soon as it feels safe to open your mouth. So If this ever happens to you, just remember what we've discussed. I mean, discussed. Because really, what have you got to lose? Oh, just darn it. Just play the song.
Tonight, there will be a vigil in Carmen, Manitoba. The community and the province are still reeling from the news of five deaths over the weekend. A Carmen man has since been charged with five counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of his partner, their three young children, and his partner's teenage relative. All five live together in Carmen. Now, questions are mounting over exactly what happened and how it might have been prevented. Manitoba Premier Wab Kinu was asked about some of these concerns while speaking to reporters today. How are we going to protect children, protect women, protect young people, protect vulnerable people in the future in Manitoba? I'm open to hearing uh, the questions around a potential inquiry. An inquest would be up to the chief medical examiner to call. But I can tell you right away, the internal work of asking these questions, pursuing accountability, and with an eye towards the future of guaranteeing safety for people in Manitoba, young people, vulnerable people, that work is underway. Sherry Gott is Manitoba's advocate for children and youth. We reached her in Winnipeg. Sherry Gott, what are the questions that are at the top of your list around this case? Um, the first thing I'd like to say is that, uh, you know, this case is very tragic in mm-hmm. itself. There's four children that have died as a result of a yeah. violent incident here in uh, Manitoba. One of the things that I would like to see is that uh, there be action immediately from the government of Manitoba to address the ongoing systemic issues in the child welfare system. And also the a response needs to be uh, developed regarding intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. The Child and Youth Advocates Office in Manitoba, as you well know, released a report in 2022 which came with recommendations. It pointed out it estimated that a child in Manitoba was witnessing a police-reported case of intimate partner violence every two hours. So given all of that, what has happened now and what we just heard from the Premier there, do you think that that work is happening quickly enough? Well, I mean, he is promising that, uh, you know, there's work happening behind the scenes. And I know that the minister, um, Minister Fontaine did mention that uh, she is seriously looking at the issue of intimate partner violence. And uh, as with any inquiry, I know that he's talking about uh, calling, possibly calling an inquiry. Those take time and they take years to complete. You know, my office has uh, released several reports um, with respect to children and their rights delayed and rights denied. So I'm asking that they respond to this crisis in Manitoba mm-hmm. right now. It's, um, you know, it's been a week and uh, I know it takes these things take time, but I think that the response needs to be immediate. There are high rates of intimate partner violence uh, in Manitoba, but it's certainly not, it is certainly not a Manitoba-only problem, as we know and as we've covered uh, on this program. Manitoba or elsewhere, why do you think it's still so prevalent? Well, as we all know, we just recently came out of a pandemic, which uh, exacerbated the issue of intimate partner violence. It happened behind closed doors. And there was no resources available for those women and children that were experiencing the violence behind closed doors with no support. You know, um, people were not allowed to move around. So these issues are coming out now. You mentioned the words in the past, you've used the words hidden and insidious to describe intimate partner violence. What are some of the, the things that can happen right away to help at least solve part of that problem? the hidden part of it? 
I think that, you know, um, I know that this hasn't been a discussion. The topic of intimate partner violence hasn't been a discussion, an open discussion for many years. And I think they need, the government needs to develop a public ed campaign, you know, advising um, women and children that are that are um, stuck in a domestic violence relationship that they have certain places that they can call or shelters they can access you know, to develop a safety plan. I think that's so important. In this particular case, it appears that that there were signs, warning signs and concerns before this happened. The mother of the the 17-year-old victim, Maya Grattan, says she raised concerns with Child and Family Services, concerns that this, this home was not safe for her daughter. What do you think when you hear something like that? Well, you know, and because this is now proceeded into a criminal case, um, you know, I'm not able to provide any details, but I can say to you that it concerns me. Like in the child welfare system, there is a due diligence process that has to happen prior to children being placed in a foster home or in any home or a group home. Um, there has to be criminal record check, child abuse registry check, and there's foster care requirements that have to be met under the CFS legislation. So from what I'm hearing, this wasn't done. And I, I'm not sure about that. You know, mm-hmm. we are looking at the, the cases right now, and we're currently at the assessment phase. We received the child death notification from the CME office, but that's as far as I can go right now. What would you say to anyone who is listening who's experiencing this kind of violence about what they can do right now to make themselves safe? I would suggest reaching out to any friend, colleague, talk about it. You know, reach out to a friend, family. Um, There's crisis line numbers that they can access. Um, You know, there's a lot of help out there. I know sometimes there's stigma attached to that, but they're not alone. That's what I would suggest. Sherry Gott, thank you for your time. Thank you. Sherry Gott is Manitoba's advocate for children and youth. We reached her in Winnipeg. The city's child and family services told our colleagues at CBC Manitoba they wouldn't comment on the issues raised by Juliet Hastings and referred the matter to the province. A representative for the province said they couldn't comment because of an active investigation. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. People in Senegal are going to have a new president sooner rather than later. That's because the country's top court has overruled a bill delaying this month's election until December. That move to delay the vote sparked widespread protests in Senegal, and at least three people have died in clashes with police. 
Last week, Neil spoke to Mamadou Lamine Diallo, an opposition politician in the country. Here is a little bit of their conversation. Mamadou Diallo, the, the president of your country, says that this is all to, to, quote, initiate open national dialogue, that there are issues with corruption, that this is the only way to make sure that there is a peaceful election. What do you think of those comments? I entirely disagree because uh, the issue of corruption, as he was mentioning, there is no proof at this time that the Conseil Constitutionnel, uh, the, the judges, are corrupted. He's alleging that the, the, the judges who put together the list of presidential candidates were accepting bribes. Yeah. You're saying there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence on this. What do you Is think Macky Sall wants? Well, Macky Sall wants to stay in power. But the pressure in Senegal, and certainly outside of Senegal, uh, was so so strong that he renounced for the third candidacy to the head of uh, to be to be president of Senegal. But nevertheless, I think he still want to continue to run Senegal. Mamadou Lamine Diallo is an opposition politician in Senegal. He spoke to Neil last week from Dakar. President Macky Sall said in a statement that he would fully abide by the court decision to overturn the postponement of the presidential election and will hold consultations to organize the vote as soon as possible. The Beatles with Get Back, recorded in 1969 for the album Let It Be, and that is, of course, Paul McCartney on the bass guitar. But as it turns out, the very bass Mr. McCartney wrote this song on would go missing just a few years later. That 1961 Hofner 500-1 violin bass was stolen more than 50 years ago and remained missing for decades. In September, we spoke with Nick Wass, who was part of an ongoing search to track it down, and he told us that work was tedious. Um, we've had about 600 messages. Oh, wow. So, so you know what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of days, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Well, after pouring through those messages, the base has finally been found and was recently returned to its rightful owner. We reached Nick Wass again today in Bavaria, Germany. Nick, in the end, was it one of those 600 messages that, that brought us to this point? It certainly was. Um, there was actually two messages that we got that actually tied everything together. It was just two um, we, we thought it would go on forever, you know, the search. We expected to do this for maybe one or two years. Did but, it? Yeah, there were two people contacted us with very definite information. And the important thing is that both these people, they didn't know each other at all. Huh. Couldn't possibly have done, but they supplied the same information, more or less. Which was? And we thought, well, basically where the theft took place. And then the second one, by a slightly roundabout way, but in the end told us who actually um, carried out the theft. So um, from those two things, we were able to, you know, work out exactly what happened to the base in the end. Um, And and where was it? That's all it it takes sometimes. Well, the base finished up in in an attic in southern England uh, in a town called Hastings. 
down on the south coast of England. Um, but before that, it, it had it, it, it was um, it was in London. Um, uh, the thief who took it, um, I think he soon realised what he'd got and got a bit frightened, <laughs> and he took it up to um, he took it up to a local pub and asked the landlord, who he knew very well, um, to hide the base for him. And he then subsequently, and I think fairly soon afterwards, asked the landlord to buy the base from him, which he did. Anyway, the landlord of the pub, um, through various steps, he'd stayed in the same family until today. Um, and finally, the, 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 the son had the base. The son um, died, unfortunately, mm. back in 21, I think. But his wife still still had the base, and when we made um, the appeal last September for information or to see the base, we believe she saw this, and um, she very kindly gave it back to um, back to Paul McCartney. How is Paul McCartney feeling? I, I, I think he's very um, well. I know he's very delighted um, that he's got his base back, and I'm not a bit surprised. You know, it was his first base, as uh, yeah. as we've said, and um, when he, he bought when he was 19. You know, and I mean. What is he? He's 81 now. So I think he's pretty, pretty pleased to see it back after all these years, for sure. So there was a social media post and, and they said that this had been inherited, you know, sort of suggesting that, that they didn't they didn't steal this themselves. But did they know what it was all this time? I don't know if they exactly knew what it was, but um, the guy at the pub all those years ago certainly knew what it was. Um, there's no question about that. I don't. I don't think anyway. Um, he he must have known what this thing was. And he, but fortunately, it stayed with this same family all these years. Um, and he, he, when it came back, it wasn't in bad condition either. It was better than we. I expected it to be. To be honest, are there identifying markers that you can say for sure that that this is McCartney's base? Oh yeah, no problem at all. I mean, I, I as soon as they got it back, um, I, I was asked to go over to England and um, authenticate the thing and write a, a full report saying, you know, without question, this is Paul McCartney's lost base. So yeah, there's characteristics. The tuners on the on the headstock are um, they can only be on this base. You can tell from contemporary records. Mm-hmm. Um, the pickups around was unique to the base. Um, the paint job that was done in 1964 is unique to the base. So it wasn't it wasn't actually very hard to identify it at all. But in fact, it was, I, I knew it was the base as soon as the case opened. So, um, it, but nonetheless, I had to do a report for them. <laughs> I haven't I haven't checked uh, Paul McCartney's Instagram, but is he is he is he strumming it? Is he going to play it? Or is he going to hang it? Well, he, he uh, well, it's got to be it's got to be repaired. There are okay. there is some damage to it, you know. Um, the neck is cracked um, on it because it, they, somebody put some very big, thick, heavy strings on it, and then put it away for decades. And these strings have cr- pulled the neck up and cracked it. Uh, the pickups don't work. They're going to have to be repaired. Um, um, the tuners I mentioned before, these odd tuners that are on it, really aren't satisfactory to make it playable. So there's a bit of work to do, but nothing nothing too difficult, really. And then hopefully, hopefully, and it's my wish, when Paul does one of his big shows, he plays a number or two on this bass. Yeah. Uh, for me, that would be very cool if he did that, yeah. yeah I think it would be yeah, cool for a lot, so. uh, a, lot of, a lot of people. A lot of people would agree with you, certainly. might be pretty cool for him, sure. for him, too. I wonder if it sort of takes him back. 
to those early early years? Well, I suppose so. I mean, he hasn't seen this thing since he was a young man, really. And, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll certainly take him back to all that early years, you know, when the Beatles got famous and uh, around that time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would think so, yeah. So you were a big part of helping find this base. Uh, are, are you going to solve some more mysteries now? No, I don't think so. I think this is the first and the last, if I'm honest. I've been on this six years, uh, since 2018. And, um, I, I, you know, I have had, actually had three emails today from other people saying, yeah. oh, would you be interested in working on this project to find a bass uh, or, or a guitar? But I think I'm done, to be honest. Um, I, I've got other plans this summer, so... Um, I've just bought a sports car and I want to go and drive that. So, um, <laughs> I don't want to look for any more bases. Well, we'll drive safe and enjoy those rides, Nick. Yeah. I appreciate your time. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for thank you for contacting me to talk about it. Take care. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Nick Wass is with the Lost Base Project. We reached him in Bavaria, Germany. Well, 2023 ended as our planet's hottest year ever recorded. What would you do if your entire town was sinking? The main culprit, according to scientists, rising sea levels brought on by climate change. A new report has shown that wildlife populations have fallen by nearly 70% since 1970. Two new studies find that we're eating and drinking more plastic than we might have realized. Humanity is on thin ice, and that ice is melting fast. From wildfires to floods, rising global temperatures to microplastics, it's easy to feel overwhelmed by climate change. So if thinking of the future leaves you anxious or discouraged, you're not alone. But you may also not be looking at the data. In a new book, data scientist Hannah Ritchie examines the environmental problems we're facing and the progress we've made. According to her, the situation is serious, but it's also much more optimistic than you might imagine. It's a point of view that's put her at odds with some of the most prominent voices in media, science, and activism. Ms. Ritchie is the author of Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. She joined Neil for a feature conversation from Edinburgh. Hannah, when you were writing this book, as you started to write this book, you you said that you printed out a picture of your younger self and put it next to your computer. Who was that Hannah in in that photograph? How did she see the world? I think that Hannah has kind of always been with me. Like I think mm-hmm. I am from a generation that has kind of always grown up with climate change. Like I, I remember as a kid, like quite a young kid, already being quite anxious about climate change and the kind of future world that I would inherit. And then I went on to study environmental sciences at university. And I think from there, it just got worse and worse. You know, you're just bombarded with negative trend after negative trend. I think I kind of got very anxious, uh, very depressed about the state of the world and also just kind of at a loss about what my future might look like. I think after having 
studied environmental sciences for so long and it being such my, my my passion to to try to contribute in a positive way I felt kind of helpless to do anything about it and, and to make the world a better place so I think the Hannah back then was was very despondent and, and almost kind of paralyzed by the future that we might inherit I think people who who are your age but also much much younger might be able to to relate to those feelings those perceptions uh, well, we want to play for a clip for you right now. Uh, it, it's it's from a group that, that you refer to more than once in your book, Extinction Rebellion. Rupert Reed is with that, that climate activist group in the UK. And this is a clip of him speaking to a group of school children. People probably sometimes ask you, what are you going to be when you grow up? But we've reached a point in human history where the question also has to be asked, what are you going to do if you grow up? I'm really, really sorry to have to say this to you. You know, it doesn't feel good. But this is the truth. And I think it's too late for anything but the truth. How do those words sit with you? I mean, I think sitting from where I am now, I think that like that, that clip, which I've, which I've heard and seen before, mm-hmm. makes me quite uncomfortable. I think I, I wouldn't speak to children in that light about climate change. I think one... I think we are facing a kind of mental health crisis when it comes to to climate. Like I get a lot of emails in my inbox. I speak to a lot of people that are in a really, really dark place. And I actually think talking about climate change in that way actually isn't helpful and is exacerbating that. Um, I think as adults, you know, we can start to speak to each other in that way and talk about more about what the future might look like but I think speaking to and in that clip they are quite young kids I mean to me they're like I don't know 10 years old Mm -hmm. or something so to me like I would not speak to kids in that way about about climate change that's why you wrote this book to set out a a different path uh based on, on on what I've read instead of despair you write that the world needs more optimism urgent optimism tell me more yeah, so with the book, I kind of wanted to to give a slightly different message about climate and the other environmental problems that I look at in the book. And it's not to dismiss these problems or say they're not urgent or they're not big or they won't have really catastrophic consequences in the future, but more to acknowledge, yes, these are big problems, but there are ways that we can tackle them. And actually we are starting to see progress. We just need much, much more of it. So I kind of make the case for what I call urgent optimism. Some people would call it impatient optimism. And that's different from this kind of blind optimism, which is kind of sitting back and saying, oh, I'm sure the future will be fine. And my key point is, no, the future won't be fine if we don't get our act together and start working on solutions. But urgent optimism is slightly different. It's acknowledging that there's a a massive problem there, but also having this level of optimism that there's something that we can do to tackle it. So it's more of an active response rather than a passive, let's sit back and do nothing. You also write, though, quote, there has never been a better time to be alive, end quote, I can hear people <laughs> saying as they hear that or as they read that, really, Hannah? Really? Given everything we're hearing and seeing? Come on. Yeah, I mean, I think the the important caveat there is that, you know, that's not necessarily the case for everyone in the world at a given time. Like, there's obviously wars going on and catastrophes going on right now, and that, that doesn't apply to those people. But I think if you take the average person in the world and look at where humanity has come, even over the last few centuries, you kind of look at almost any metric of human well-being, whether that's 
child mortality, maternal mortality, life expectancy, the opportunity to go to school. You know, we've eradicated diseases, um, rights if you're a woman, if you're a gay person, if you're transgender. I think on all of these trends, the world has got much, much better over the last few centuries. Now, the world is not fine as it is today. Not everyone has access to these rights. Not everyone has the same opportunities that, that we have. But even if you look across the world, for the average person in most countries, the world has got significantly better. You didn't come to this change overnight. It's based in data, as as we'll discuss. But there was a turning point that you write about right at the outset of, of your book, and that was seeing the work of Hans Rosling, a Swedish physician, statistician, and public speaker who teaches global development. I wanted to play for our listeners a bit of a TED Talk he gave in 2006. Here we go. Can you see there? It's China. They're moving against better health. They're improving there. All the green Latin American countries, they are moving towards smaller families. The yellow ones here are the Arabic countries and they get larger families, but they, no, longer life, but not larger families. This is India. Indonesia is moving on pretty fast. And in the 80s here, you have Bangladesh still among the African countries there, but not Bangladesh. He's energetic, so he definitely catches your attention. This is the first time I'm um, learning about him and hearing that clip with our listeners. But what is happening there? What beyond his exuberance <laughs> captured your attention? Yeah, I mean, I think I should set in stone like what my mindset was like at that time. I was looking at environmental trends. I was an environmental scientist. I mean, you look at those trends, they've just got worse and worse and worse. And I think the issue I had at the time is that I was extrapolating that and assuming that all of the human well-being metrics were also getting worse and worse. So child mortality was its highest level of our hunger, poverty, death from disasters, everything was getting worse and worse and worse. And then I discovered the work of Hans Rosling. And what he did is he would do these amazing talks where he'd use statistics and data to show how the world has changed over the last few centuries. And what you see when you look at the data and what his kind of party trick was is that the the basic assumptions that we have about the world are often wrong, like completely upside down. So he'd ask people basic questions like, is global extreme poverty going up or down? And most people would say it's going up. When you look at the data, it's very clearly going down and has been going down for decades and decades. And this applies to many, many different human well-being metrics. And what he would show is that on almost every measure, things have got much, much better. I think for me, that was a key turning point from um, this despair that everything in the world was getting worse to this kind of realisation, OK, some stuff is getting worse, the environmental stuff is getting worse. But on many of these problems, we actually are making a lot of progress and we can find solutions. So the work isn't done, but we've made some progress and that should give you hope. Yeah, we're very, very far from done. Like we still have massive problems in the world and massive inequalities. So the showing this data isn't, you know, to pat ourselves on the back and say, okay, it's fine, we can stop now. But it's to show that progress is actually possible. And by learning those lessons from the past on how we achieve these gains, you can actually drive momentum and drive much, much more progress in the future. So finding out about his work was a turning point, as we've said. What was the point you sat down and decided to write this book? I think this came after maybe a decade or so of 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 working on data related to environmental metrics and how the environment was changing. But I think steadily over years of looking at the data and seeing how it was evolving, um, I started to see a shift in how I was thinking about these problems. Like as I say, it's not that they're they're not big problems or they're not pressing or 
or even that we're on the right trajectory, because on many of these problems, we aren't on the right trajectory. But I've started to see very, very clear signs of progress that give me much, much more hope that we can actually tackle them in the future. Are you saying that the worst is over on some of these issues? I think on some of them in some regions. I mean, others clearly not. I mean, a clear example there, there's a chapter on air pollution. And I think there are several big air pollution problems we've actually solved, right? We solved the ozone layer problem. We solved the acid rain problem. And actually, when you look in rich countries, uh, local air pollution, which is a massive problem globally, you know, we're talking about around 7 million premature deaths every year just from the air that we breathe. But in many rich countries, our air has got significantly cleaner over the last 50 years, and we've massively reduced the amount of people dying from from air pollution. So on many of the problems, we actually have made significant progress. Uh, on others, you know, we're very far from being on the right trajectory, and I think like climate is a very clear example of that. Are you worried, though, that some may take your arguments that you that you back up with the data you've, you've put in there? Are you worried that they could be used to say, see, we told you, it's not so bad? I think that walking the line between giving people a sense that these problems are solvable and there's something we can do without pushing people into complacency, I actually think that's a very like hard line to tread. And I tried very hard in the book to, to try to balance these two things. But we need to have a, you know, keep both perspectives in mind at the same time. Yes, they're big problems and we're not on track, but we're we're starting to get there and there's much, much more that we can do. You write that accepting defeat on climate change is an indefensibly selfish position to take. You also underline that you're, you know, you're not going to debate climate science or concerns about climate change in this book, that, that that's already been decided. So, so you want to underline that in the book and, and in this conversation too, I suspect. Yeah, I mean, we're very, very far past the, the position of debating, you know, is climate change real or are humans causing it? Like, I'm I'm kind of setting that aside and saying, yes, it's real and we are the driver. And it's more about solutions. Like, we, we need to move past the, is it happening, to the what do we actually do about it? And and the, the message from the, the you said earlier about, um, you know, giving up is kind of indefensible in a selfish way. Like, I think this really gets to the heart of, of what's at stake with the the climate crisis there's such large inequalities in the world on who the how climate change will impact the most it will predominantly fall on people at lower incomes in poorer countries who have have done the least to cause this and in rich countries in particular if we step back and say oh this is too hard we don't want to tackle this to me that's a selfish position to take because the the impacts of that the adverse impacts will most heavily fall on the poorest that haven't really contributed to the problem you're listening to as it happens i'm neil kirksal and i'm speaking with hannah ritchie about her new book not the end of the world how we can be the first generation to build a sustainable planet hannah you use examples from your own family to try to illustrate where we were where we're at and where we can go. Specifically, you talk about your grandparents and you compare how sustainable their lives were to your own life now. Because we often hear about the the good old days or the idea that life was more sustainable back then. What did you find as you looked back and compared? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at my lifestyle today and compare it to my grandparents when they were my age, I think you'd say, you know, have just a much higher environmental footprint and a much have a much more extravagant lifestyle. But I think on many measures, actually, in the UK, 
um, at least, uh, and, and probably applies across many different countries. Um, environmental sustainability has got much better. Um, when my grandparents were my age, the UK was getting nearly all of its power from coal. Now, we're at the stage in the UK now where um, we're basically running free from coal. Like We've got coal completely out of the, the energy mix, and that has had a massive impact on our CO2 emissions. It's had a massive impact on our levels of local air pollution. I think there are other metrics, like water pollution, for example, where the UK today is much more sustainable than it was uh, when my grandparents from my age. So I think in many countries, actually, sustainability has improved over the last few decades, which kind of goes counterintuitive to what we might imagine. Your brother, who's not an environmentalist, appears a couple of times in, in this book as well. Let's start with what he drives and what you learn from that. Yeah, so my my brother's not like a really strong environmentalist. And I think that's... I despite think that's actually, your best efforts? <laughs> yeah, despite my best <laughs> efforts. Um, but I think that's really key to our messaging around climate and climate solutions. If we're going to achieve this, um, we need to get more people on board than just, you know, the really staunch environmentalists. Like, I would love everyone to have climate change as their kind of top priority, but that is just not reality. So we need to develop solutions that people across the spectrum will like and adopt, regardless of whether they actually really, really care about climate change or not. And the key to that is providing really good, really cheap, high-quality products that are alternatives to what they already have. So I use the example of my brother and, and, and transport. So he recently bought an electric car. And again, he didn't buy it because he really wanted to reduce his carbon footprint. He just bought an electric car because it was cool. The driving experience was really, really good. It was much easier to charge than going to a petrol station. So there were all of these other benefits beyond climate that forced him to switch to an electric car. Now, he will massively reduce his carbon footprint, so that's a good thing. So actually, why he chose to do that doesn't actually matter. It's about the, de- the solutions that we develop that get as many people on board as possible. And what about his food choices? Yeah, so we, me and my brother kind of went in opposite directions at one point. So I, I moved to a vegetarian and then a vegan diet. And I think when I did that, he seemed to increase his meat consumption uh, in the other direction. <laughs> Is he older um, or younger? He's older, yeah. Okay. Just needed to map um, out that family dynamic first. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> so we always seem to go in opposite directions. Um, and he was always very, very skeptical of, of the kind of meat substitute products. And, and he would always say, no, I don't want that. They don't taste the same or they're not as good. And then his uh, his now wife, uh, one evening they were having, a, I think it was kind of like a spaghetti bolognese, and she kind of snuck the, the, <laughs> the meat-free mince into the recipe. And, and he said, oh, that was the kind of best version of that you've ever made. <laughs> Now, he would never have said that if he'd known up front that it wasn't the real mince, it was the meat-free stuff, but it made him much more open to these products now where where previously, you know, he just wouldn't have touched it. You mentioned that, that you switched to a vegan diet. You say in the book that everyone doesn't need to do that. You're not suggesting that that happens, but just take us through what your meals look like and what you're suggesting to readers when you talk about that. 
Yeah, so I think we really underestimate the environmental impacts of our food system on most of the world's environmental problems, from from climate to land use to deforestation, biodiversity loss, water use. Farming and agriculture is a really, really key driver of these problems. And what you find when you look at the data is that the by far the most impactful, like negative impact foods tend to be meat and dairy. They tend to have a much higher footprint than plant-based products. So the kind of number one recommendation, if you wanted to reduce your carbon footprint or your water footprint or reduce pressure on deforestation, is to eat less meat. And they are specifically beef and lamb, is much worse than pork or chicken, for example. But, you know, it's not about everyone going vegan because I think that's unrealistic. And I think trying to push that message would be really counterproductive. But either reducing the amount of meat that you eat or switching, for example, from beef and lamb to pork or chicken more often would actually have a really substantial impact on reducing your carbon footprint. So it's not necessarily this all or nothing. Everyone doing a bit would actually have a much bigger impact than a small share of the population going completely vegan. Just anecdotally, I would say, at least in in North America, there's been a shift towards that anyway. Are, Are you seeing that in the data as well? Yeah, you see that uh, quite clearly in the data. Um, total meat consumption isn't really going down, but we have seen this meat switching where beef for consumption, for example, has actually gone down in North America and seems to have been substituted with chicken, which has grown quite strongly. You point out the progress, as we've talked about, that's already been made. There are deep concerns, of course, uh, from, from experts as well, that it's still not happening quickly enough. So ultimately, can we really rely on governments and corporations to implement those changes quickly enough? No, I completely agree with that. Um, We have made significant progress, but I also agree that it's really not fast enough. Like if you look at climate change, for example, we're currently on a trajectory by the end of the century to see between two and a half to three degrees of warming. But that's obviously well above our targets of either 1.5 degrees or well below two degrees. So no, we're not on a good trajectory and we really need to accelerate progress if we're to get anywhere close to those targets. But what we also can acknowledge is that a decade ago, we were talking about being on track for three and a half to four degrees. So we've actually cut that trajectory by around a degree within the last decade. The question then is, can we look at that progress and understand that progress to drive much, much more of it? And what I really think is really key to highlight about many of these trends is that they're not linear. The really key developments that we've seen over the last decade is the plummeting cost of alternatives to fossil fuels. So solar, wind, batteries, electric cars, the price in these goods have plummeted. Like 10 years ago, they were way more expensive than fossil fuels, which is why we really weren't making any progress, because no one was really going to switch at a large scale. They're now undercutting the cost of fossil fuels, which means that countries will start to adopt them, not just on the basis of climate, but just because it makes economic sense to do so. And as those costs continue to fall, that, that will start to get easier and easier and easier. And the deployment of these technologies, again, is not necessarily linear tends to follow what we call an S-curve, where you start to get very, very slow growth in the beginning, but then you hit a kind of tipping point, like a positive tipping point, where they really accelerate and in some cases go exponential. So I think although we're really not moving fast enough today, I think we can look to the future and see if we really get a move on, many of these trends can accelerate. But could that progress have been made 
if it weren't for people protesting and pointing out the problems and saying the difficult things that now you may think are, are too doom and gloom. But if that hadn't happened, would that change the progress we've seen now really have come to be? I mean, I think it's very hard to attribute, you know, the different factors that have got us to where we are today. But I think actually activism and raising alarm has been really positive. I think it really has woken people up to the scale of the problem. If you look at data across most countries and look at survey data, um, most of the public think climate change is a problem. They want to see governments acting and they are actually worried uh, about the potential impacts. And I think you can attribute like a lot of that to, to climate science, to climate activism that have got it really on the agenda. I think the question we have to ask now is how you shift that engagement into action. And I think for that, you might need a slightly different message. It's no longer about just telling everyone how bad it's going to be, because we already know that. It's about talking more about, okay, how do we take that concern and translate it into change that actually reduces emissions and moves us away from fossil fuels. I think that message needs to be more oriented towards solutions and and how we implement those and what the benefits are, and not necessarily just about reiterating the problem over and over again. This is As It Happens. I'm Neil Kirksall, and we've invited Hannah Ritchie to be on the show to talk about her book, Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. Hannah, as you well know, even when governments do bring in policies that environmentalists might applaud and have been pushing for, those policies can sometimes be controversial. The public may not be happy about them. The carbon tax, a price on carbon, certainly a big discussion here in Canada. You write about the key role in your view that carbon pricing can play in moving away from fossil fuels. There's a lot of controversy, questions. Uh, Some believe the carbon tax is is far too high. There are government rebates. uh, But how do you deal with those perceptions and, and pushing back against those perceptions? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, I guess there's two ways to kind of change the economics of fossil fuels and and, and goods within the energy system. One, you can tax, so you can make the fossil fuels more expensive. Um, And I think when we do that, I think what's really important to get public buy-in is to make sure it's not hurting the poorest the most. That's what we would call a regressive tax. And that's actually quite a concern. There are ways to to mitigate that. Example, through redistribution of the, the, the gains that you get from the tax itself. There's a flip side, which just says you just support um, low carbon alternatives. So rather than hiking up the price of fossil fuels, you bring down the cost of, of low carbon alternatives. And I think that approach probably has more buy-in than the opposite because people like to, I mean, we should often talk about what we want rather than what we, we don't want. Um, so I think I think, I think think this political messaging is, is very difficult. But as I said earlier, I think what's really key to get across is not only talking about these solutions through the lens of climate. Now, of course, that's important. And for me, that's the key driver. I think it's also to iterate what the benefits of moving to low carbon energy are. Uh, lower levels of local air pollution, higher levels of employment in specific communities, lower energy bills, more energy security. I think energy security has become a massive issue on politicians' agendas over the last few years as a result of the the war in in Russia and Ukraine. Um, So I think there are a range of co-benefits that when we're talking about this energy transition, we really also need to flag and not only talk about it through the, the climate and the carbon tax lens. 
In terms of, of the information that is out there and making sure that people around the world have the best information, reputable news agencies, of course, are, are taking a look at what scientists are saying, at the research, at government policies as they put out as they put out their stories. Um, many networks, including ours, have, have climate science reporters working on these stories because of their importance to people around the world. But throughout the book, you highlight the role of media and, and caution against some of the reporting. But don't journalists need to be reporting the facts of what's been going on? Absolutely. And I think the, the role of journalists there is, is really essential to to keep our eye on what's at stake when it comes to, to climate change and these other environmental problems. So it's not that journalists shouldn't be reporting on these stories. Like they absolutely should. But I think media shouldn't only cover the problem. I think we also need to focus on solutions. So we need the, more of a balance of, of, of restating and, and making sure everyone has an eye on, you know, what's at stake with climate change, but also trying to work towards better reporting on what we can actually do about it. I think that's how we shift the needle. People know that climate change is happening. They know it's bad. They're looking for really good information so they can understand what's actually going on around the world on that side of things. What does your brother think of the book in the end? He says he's going to sue me for defamation. <laughs> <laughs> Why? There's nothing bad in there about him? No, he's, he was just kidding. No, yeah. he's he's actually very supportive uh, of the book and, and has been really yeah, pleased to be in it. Is he is he sort of the ideal reader? The like, who who do you envision? Who do you want most to pick up this book? Um, I think I think there are a couple of target audiences. I think. One is just kind of kind of younger people that were like my former self, mm -hmm. and I kind of want to help them kind of move from a, a darker place to a slightly lighter one. Um, and I think, I think, yeah, I think to some sense, my my brother is a target audience. I think there's lots of environmental books written for people that are so entrenched within environmentalism, and I'm I'm part of that group. But I think if we really want to make progress on this, we need to broaden the number of people that we're reaching. And I think that means trying to target a much broader part of the spectrum, ranging from people that are highly engaged to people that are, yeah, care about it, but don't it's not like top, top priority for them. So I think I think what I've wanted to do with the book is broaden a bit the readership of a kind of traditional environmental book. I enjoyed reading it, Hannah, uh, and I'm glad we could speak. Thank you very much for your time. No, thank you very much. Hannah Ritchie is a data scientist and the author of Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. It's published by Hachette Canada. We reached Ms. Ritchie in Edinburgh. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also find our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Neil Koksal. And I'm Samira Moyedin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.